Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I'm joined, as always, by my magnanimous co-host, Mr. Mark Yusko. What's going on? Ah, I love you. You are, you are great with the adjectives. All right. Well, great to be with you, Michael, and excited to, uh, to have another weekly roundup. And, and just the quick reveal, you know, I, I struggled because I really wanted to wear the roller coaster socks today, but I, I had already worn them. So I, I, have, I broke out the whale socks mm. because... Uh, I think the problem for Bitcoin right now is it's it's too concentrated. It needs to be more widely held. I don't know this. I don't have a solution. You know, the whales aren't going to suddenly just magnanimously give their their Bitcoin away. Ooh, that worked, and that was not that planned. Did that did work. That did not. Did not <laughs> that did not. That was not planned. Mm. But um, I do think it's a problem, and we'll talk about that at some point. Yeah, yeah, we'll cover it. Let, let, let's start with the Biden executive order, uh, because I think that was, that was kind of like the big news of the week. You know, it's funny. I was I was actually paying. I mean, so the the executive order actually got leaked like one day early, right? This was officially announced on March 9th. But actually, there's a very yeah. quick tweet that got deleted. And I was I was just watching Bitcoins like 10 at night. All of a sudden, it was going parabolic. I was like, what in yeah. the hell is going on here? And then I realized, oh, it just got leaked, got leaked early. Um but uh, let's talk about this exact order, what it is, what it is not. All right. So we also covered this uh, on Empire um, that, that just came out today. So uh, if, you, if you watch every BlockWorks podcast, uh, bear with us here while we're going over it. But I want to get Mark's take. Um, so basically, the executive order, it's a declaration and it's calling for various government agencies to work together to produce a comprehensive national policy across six different dimensions. So if you were sitting there kind of thinking, oh, we now have a, a policy for uh, crypto, we do not. Um, this is going to be the the White House is essentially calling on a whole bunch of different agencies to produce something comprehensive over the next 180 days, except for one of these dimensions, which we're actually going to, they want in 90. Here are the six dimensions that they want. They want to protect consumers, investments and businesses, or investors and businesses. They want to protect US and global financial stability. They want to mitigate illicit finance and national security risk. They want to promote US leadership in tech and economic competitiveness. That was cool to see. They want to promote equitable access to financial services, and they want to support technological advances. They also explicitly call, called for the exploration of a CDC, CBDC by the Fed. I think the big takeaway is one, crypto is worried about draconian regulation, right? I think this pretty much allayed some of those fears that, okay, we understand what this is, and we're going to take a thoughtful approach. The other thing is, Ever since I've been in crypto, there have been various kind of agencies jockeying for control, right? I, honestly, I know Gary Gensler gets a bad rap in crypto. I think a lot of his statements can be seen as posturing because he's like, I'm, I'm this tough guy, like give me more. I think he's jockeying for more control, right? In jurisdiction, yeah. in crypto. Yeah, yeah. So like sometimes you got the CFTC and the SEC saying, hey, I've got this and you've got that. So what I think what this was, was basically they actually allocated, they're like, hey, on this dimension, we want treasury and, you know, uh, Department of Commerce kind of looking in. and on this, uh, you know, on this aspect, we want the SEC and the CFTC looking into it. So I thought it was just good coordination among different agencies too. Mm -hmm. What was your What was your take on the whole thing? I mean, two two different takes. One total nothing burger, right? There's just nothing. It's just a bunch of platitudes, a bunch of words, and so from that perspective, you know, no regulations, no changes, no direction. No, total nothing burger. So the so the little mini ramp 
had to come back. I mean, that, that was, there, there was just nothing there. Was You're talking there. about the price yeah, increase. The, it just yeah, the basically price, the price spiked ramp. and then gave um, it all back. Yeah. And because there, there was, there's no there there. Now the flip side is, wait a second. The top office of the most powerful country in the world felt a need to issue an executive order to outline a plan for studying cryptocurrencies, digital assets. It's pretty good. I mean, yeah. it, that means, okay, it's, it's, it's not a fad. It's not a fraud. It's not a Ponzi. It's not going away. It's technology, right? Everything in, that you just outlined is about technological innovation and how do we, I mean, the, the fourth point to your point is awesome, right? We ought to be a leader in technological innovation. We're not going to ban it. We're not going to fight it. Now, <clears throat> they are going to fight it a lot, as, as we've talked about. We're in the then they fight you phase, and that's going to go on for a while. There are, there are going to be uh, some draconian regulations coming down the pipe, absolutely, positively. There are going to be uh, attempts to cancel whole swaths of uh, innovation, contrary to, to what it says. We have to always get to Sinister Saturday. There's some sinister stuff in there that, you know, is buried under the platitudes and nice, nice. But it's CBDCs are evil. They're evil incarnate. And the idea that's just a, a nice, stable coin, it's just not. There are two, there are, there are multiple models people need to remember for CBDCs. There are wholesale CBDCs and there are retail CBDCs. So a retail CBDC is what most people, I think, assume. It's like the liabilities of central banks actually become legal tender. Uh, and a wholesale is like uh, they, the central bank has a CBDC that goes to commercial banks. And I, I just genuinely don't understand how that's any different from the current system that we have. So in my opinion, when you talk about CBDCs, what I assume people are talking about is the retail version of CBDCs, yeah. where the U it's U.S. It's different, Michael, in that it's it's digital instead of electronic. It's a public ledger instead of a electronic entry in a in a database, literally like a spreadsheet. Right. So it's a subtle difference, but but the idea that it would stop there and not go to full smart contract, programmable, draconian, hey. You know, you jaywalked, so I'm sorry. Your money just got devalued by 5%. Mm. Or you tweeted something about the president. You know, I'm sorry. Yeah, you can't, you can't go to Disney. Even on other like podcasts I listen to or media sources I consume, people are generally aligning on this idea that the financial system should be used as a means of punishment uh, I mean, we talked about this on, on the show last week, right? I mean, are yeah. these sanctions against Russia, are they going to exacerbate things or are they going to contain the situation? And what I would say to the people who are very, I, I think nobody knows the answer to that question. What I would say uh, to folks who are very confident that this is like an evolved form of warfare, I'd just be careful with that. And I like, I mean, my personal viewpoint on this is that I view an independent financial system as a, as a good check against sovereign power, which should be the goal here, right? If you look at the last 7,500 years of human history, checks against sovereign power are generally good things. So that's what I would say. Um, <laughs> a, amen to, yeah. to the, you mean, yes. I'm going to transition to talking about inflation, the recent CPI print, and the situation that the Fed finds itself in. So, Fed in a box. Yeah. They, they are. 
in a box right now. So let, let's just talk about uh, the February headline inflation. So it came in at 7.9%. This is about where economists thought it was going to come in. So you're seeing a breakdown here of you know the, the top line number, which is headline, came in at 787 uh, It also breaks out core, which is at 6.41%. Then it breaks it out between services, goods, food, and energy. So again, services, I mean, up, trending up, but roughly the same as it's been since like 2017, right? Like not, not, yep. not huge. The big changes here are coming in the form of goods, uh, which is way up. Food, which is still relatively low, but but, but concerning. Uh, and then obviously energy uh, has been a huge contributor. Um, so any kind of thoughts here? Like what, what kind of stands out to you, I suppose, when you're looking at this chart? Look, it, it, it other than oil and used car prices, which is not really concerning. You know, people are freaking out. Um, but you take those two things out and it's the vast majority of the increase. And, and look, I, you know, I, I, I would have, I, I, I said it and I, I'm, I'm wrong. Um, yeah, I said, I didn't think oil could or would double again. Uh, you know, when we hit kind of 85, 90 bucks, um, I was like, okay. So we had this big increase in oil that will be transitory definitionally because if you double you go from 45 to 90 100 uh, increase you're going to get a big spike remember these are trailing numbers they're they're, mm -hmm. they're in the past and so then it will slowly as, as if we just stay where we are then that 100 turns into 90 turns into 80 turns into 70 and eventually goes away <laughs> of course then we ran to 130 now we're back uh 105 106 so so maybe we we don't but look i i didn't see the 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 russian uh invasion happening i didn't see the, the decision to you know kind of cut off our nose to spite our face and and disrupt the entire oil market and and what i really didn't see because i actually thought this would happen i i really believed midterm election year we would go to saudi cut a little deal for whatever they want and they would magically start pumping more right before the election because the thing that people forget there is a perfect, I mean perfect, inverse correlation, okay, X factor between price of gasoline and presidential popularity. And for Democrats to have any chance of holding on to anything in the midterms, gasoline cannot be five, six, seven dollars. It just can't be. Yeah. No way. I'm I'm with you here. And this is where I wanna, you know, kind of call on your experience. Because I've noticed this, you know, I a lot of even in the rhetoric that you hear coming out of uh, President Biden and the White House, I mean, you know, there's a lot of like Putin's war, uh, hurting Americans at the gas pump. A lot of this Americans yeah. at the gas pump rhetoric I'm hearing. Uh, oh, the the Putin price increase. Yeah, they they called it the, the the that Jan whatever her name is. She's horrible, by the way. I mean, she called it the the Putin price increase. Like, but no, those numbers that came out yesterday are three four weeks old, and right. the invasion only started. A week and a half ago. I mean, there's zero correlation. Well, so. Walk us through, Mark, uh, like just, just how you think about the impact of like when, when you see, you know, oil and gas prices rising at the degree that they are. I mean, how does that generally impact an economy? And, you know, you and I were talking about kind of before we got on here the 70s, right? And you you had a situation mm -hmm. where obviously there mm -hmm. was, you know, the, the oil embargo, you know, gas prices, you know, spiked. And, um, and that was actually 
kind of stagflationary. So, so walk yes. us through like how, how how do rising oil how do, how do they impact the economy in general? Maybe how is this situation different from the 1970s? Well, oil in particular, right? It's it's an input cost for everything, right? right? I mean, petrochemicals, uh, everything that we use from plastic to, you know, all the you know metal things that are extruded. And I mean, everything is reliant on, on energy. In fact, I, I, I think we've talked about this. I love the commercial. And it was from one of the pipeline companies that showed this this couple, you know, getting ready for a date. And they're showing, you know, she's putting on her makeup and getting ready. And he's doing this and he's getting... And then they start taking away the things made with oil. And suddenly her lipstick tube vanishes. And suddenly the cars on his... Mm. I mean, the wheels on his car, the tires on his car disappear. And they can't get to the restaurant. And then when they get to the restaurant, then the food starts to disappear because it's all transported in on trucks using, you know... Energy. So this idea that um, you know we can live in a world like the, the ridiculous comment. Well, if everyone just had an electric vehicle, this wouldn't be a problem. Oh my God, really? Mm-hmm. You know, you're telling per- someone who has a a ten year old Honda that they need to go buy a sixty thousand dollar EV, which couldn't even get because there just aren't enough of them. Oh yeah, that that's that's the solution. So the the this chart is so great because what it shows is. Those costs impact growth. And if there is an oil price shock, there will be a significant retrenchment in growth. So in the 70s, that happened, right? You had the supply shock from Iran, back to Iran, uh, and then the whole Contra scandal and all all that good stuff. So a whole conversation we could have about that. But uh, in fact, my family, you know, thankfully, touch wood, uh, we were months away from moving to Iran back then. Um, mm. Thankfully, we didn't. Um, but, you know, dad had an assignment and that's where we were going to go. Um, but uh, didn't do it. So in the 70s, it was different in that you had a, a temporary spike in in prices. Uh, as you would expect, you know, people didn't drive as much. You couldn't actually get gasoline. You had to wait in these long lines. Uh, economic growth collapsed. You had the stagflation. You had rising prices. Uh, now, the stagflation was exacerbated by some problems in the way they counted inflation. And you had housing prices in there. And then there was a mortgage factor, which I don't, I can't explain as well as Mike Green. We should have Mike Green back sometime to explain exactly how that works. But there was this, this self-reinforcing thing where Volcker was looking at this, this indicator within the, the CPI measure. And Everything he did, it, we got exacerbated, and that's why we got the crazy like 22% interest rate, which crushed uh, economic activity uh, in the short run. And then they fixed it. They, they, they noticed the mistake, uh, literally like a mistake in a spreadsheet, and, and fixed it. So, But the difference between then and now was then you had massive demographic tailwinds. All the boomers, all of us, right, were coming into the... 35 to 55 range of uh, maximum spending, maximum household formation, and, and all that was, was what powered us into this incredible recovery in the 80s and 90s. And that is definitely not the case today, right? Today, we have massive demographic headwinds. 10,000 people every single day turn, t- turn 65. Uh, and that isn't going to stop. And so this type of supply shock, 
I believe, and, and Lynn Alden talks about this a lot, is much, much more like the 30s and could lead and probably will lead to a deflationary shock, not an inflationary shock. And if you think about how things are playing out, there is a very eerie, eerie parallel to 1937. You know, we went into zero interest rates and QE for the first time back in 1930, post the 29 collapse. And we basically held interest rates at zero for seven years. And in 1937, the Fed tried to raise rates 25 basis points. So here we are on the verge next week of the Fed trying to go and start tightening. And remember, it's going to be 50, and then now it's going to barely be 25. And and that 25 basis points in 1937 actually turned a garden variety recession into the Great Depression. And I'm not saying we're going to have a depression. What I'm saying is these types of inflationary shocks that everyone thinks are going to push up inflation actually, if you look at history, lead to deflationary debt spirals. And we have the same amount of debt to GDP as we did back in, in the 30s. We have bad demographics like we did in the 30s. And now we have this same kind of commodity price shock because what people forget is we had a massive increase in commodity prices that potentially caused the rollover of markets and ultimately uh, fueled the depression uh, because of the Dust Bowl and, and, and other things. And, it's, and remember, we also in 1933 made it worse by making it illegal to own gold, confiscating gold, devaluing the dollar 35% overnight, which, oh, wait a second, we just did that with COVID. Mm. We basically devalued the currency 40% overnight, actually in a matter of weeks, not overnight, uh, by printing all this money. And now everyone's surprised that prices are going up. That's not inflation the way the 70s inflation is that is devaluation of the currency there's a difference this episode is brought to you by fireblocks i talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto native funds crypto banks exchanges and the like and they all tell me they have the same two problems one their treasury management setup sucks they've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions two they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day -day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. I put these two charts together because, you know, just connecting again, this idea of rising energy as an input, as an input, um, 
you know, the title on this slide is wrong, by the way. It should say wage growth and inflation by, you know, versus uh, the impact of a 10% gasoline price hike. So what you're seeing yep. on the right here is when gasoline goes up by 10%, how does it impact consumer spending, right, across different income deciles? So, you know, it kind of goes for the top 10%. It doesn't really impact consumer spending very much. And then it kind of trends, not at all, not right? at all, basically, not literally not at all, zero. And then, and then it kind zero. of trends down from like the ninth, eighth, seventh, sixth. But for the lowest 10%, there's a huge jump. So basically, the idea here is that when gas spikes by 10%, there's a gigantic decrease in consumer spending for the lowest 10% of income earners. So the chart on the on the left here is you're looking at wage growth and inflation by low wage, middle wage and high wage industries. So the biggest jump in wage growth, real wage growth, has actually been for low-wage industries, low-income earners. So for high-wage industries, middle-wage industries, your, your, your nominal wage is still up. Actually, the highest in about 30 years, it's up. But because of what inflation is doing, you're kind of still coming out net negative. It, that's true for everyone except for very low-wage industries, uh, low-income earners. So you're, you're still actually coming out on top of all of this. But it, it is interesting to, con to connect it with you know, what, with what's going on with oil, because uh, that impacts them kind of the most. So again, it was like the, the one bit of silver lining on this, at least just looking at this chart, was this was actually kind of good for the lowest 10% of income earners, but oil, you know, rising cost of oil kind of... Yeah, but here's the thing. <clears throat> it's money illusion. So you, you feel better because your nominal wages go up, but you're, you're just getting crushed relentlessly crushed because your food prices are going up skyrocketing literally i mean i, I you know, went to lunch the other day i had a pizza a little personal pizza by myself i had water i didn't even have i didn't have a coke or anything i mean just water 18 dollars. now that's tax and tip included but 18 dollars. i live in chapel hill north carolina you go back a year that was $14. You go back two years, it was like $10. And that is, you know, and I'm, I'm very blessed, right? That, I mean, $18, I, okay. I mean, I can afford that. But, but imagine working in a minimum wage job, how many hours you have to work after tax to afford that lunch? Well, you don't eat that lunch. And it's crazy because that's not a, it's not a luxury. That should be a normal part of, of society. So the one slide that we we're just showing there for a bit is that the expectation of inflation, you know, peak inflation, right? Everyone was saying inflation was going to roll over, right, in January mm -hmm. or February. That keeps getting pushed out. Now it's April. It's like 8.5% expected in April. Who knows, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. But my, my question is, is, is how does all of this translate into crypto and crypto markets? Because, yeah. uh, you know, the... We, you know, what we originally talked about with my non sequitur before is the rock and the hard place that the Fed is currently in. Generally, in wartime, legitimate wartime scenarios, interest rates go low because the job of the of the central yep. bank is to finance whatever expenditures yep. the government needs to make. On the other hand, we are now in an inflationary environment, and it's actually so. Actually, here I'll pull this back up uh, because expectations around what the Fed is going to do and what rates are going to do is are whipsawing. So you've got here. So this is the Fed fund futures, right? So this is how, you know, whenever you guys hear like, oh, this is how many rate hikes are priced in, they're talking about this instrument, the Fed funds futures. So, you know, at one point it was pricing in almost seven rate hikes. 
Then when war in Ukraine broke out, it dipped, right? It was kind of trending down, but now it's bounced right back up, right? And when you're looking at the same thing, same story is being told by the US, the two-year bond yield, right? Kind of peaked around uh, 1.6%. It looked like it was diving and then it just reached new highs, which is actually above pre-COVID highs. And again, this is from our friends at DoubleLine. We know mm-hmm. that the US, the two-year and the Fed funds rate um, are, are tightly linked or very correlated in the very least. And I, you know, I got to be honest with you. So it looks like the market doesn't really know what it what it expects the Fed to do. I think the Fed is in a really tough spot here because you're you're hearing rhetoric from politicians that inflation, you know, costs at the gas, pain at the gas pump. That's the most important thing. On the other hand, the Fed's like, man, I, if we're about to engage geopolitically, I gotta I gotta finance this. So I don't know. I actually think I think. People are right. I think the Fed is going to hike into this and probably cause a recession. Nope. You don't think so? No, nope. no. Nope. Mm. Take the under. Mm. Um, look, they, they, they can't. They absolutely cannot. Um, they I mean, they should, and, and, and they should have a long time ago, right? I mean, the time to hike was 2013 when the economy was strong and we didn't need emergency measures anymore. Uh, there was no conflict. Uh, and they should have taken it all the way back up to nominal GDP growth of 4 or 5%. But, but they didn't. Uh, should have reloaded the gun. Now, it's too late, right? right. GDP growth for Q1 is going to be close to zero. Uh, the economic impact of the oil price shock is going to be felt into, into Q2. Uh, we, we will recess probably this year. Um, you're already seeing it in, in Europe. Right? They hit just, uh, just barely positive GDP. Um, you know, there's, 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 in my mind, zero probability that the cost problems related to this spike in, in commodity prices, you look at nickel prices or, you know, uh, other uh, industrial materials, industrial metals prices, there's just zero probability that, that that doesn't trickle through. Look at, at transportation prices, you know, dry bulk rates. Um, all of that uh, portends much slower economic growth. And I said, in history, every recession has been precipitated by this type of oil price spike or commodity price spike. Every depression has been precipitated by a unanticipated commodity shock. And what's really interesting about those shocks is everyone thinks the same way at first, which is, oh, well, the Fed monetary policy can fix that. Can't. Mm. Zero chance. And, and that's why um, they're in a box, right? I, I talk about this all the time. Fed in a box. They, they lost control a long time ago. And the idea that the Fed didn't cause the monetary devaluation that we're seeing is ludicrous. Uh, you know, oil is certainly a big piece of it, as I said, but the bigger piece is the devaluation of currencies, the dollar, the yen, the euro. And I, I love the debate, you know, and I, and I love Brent, you know, um, at Santiago Fund. Uh, and, you know, he's got this dollar milkshake theory and, oh, the dollar's strong and everybody, <laughs> no, 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 no. The dollar is just the least weak. 
it's strong versus the euro and the yen, but it's down against the renminbi. Mm. That's a fact. That is a fact. The renminbi is stronger than the dollar over the past couple of years. And so the fact that DXY doesn't go down, he's like, oh, yeah, the dollar. Yeah. So we're better than the euro in the end. Great. I think he thinks, though, what, what, if I had to defend his point of view, is that he ultimately views the dollar system as broken, but he thinks there's going to be a big spike before it eventually ends up breaking. And Right. Right. Yeah. I think, I think he thinks there's an irony where in this inflationary kind of environment where fiat, the fiat system breaks down, a lot of people expect a weak dollar environment, whereas actually you might end up with a strong dollar and that would cause more pain for anyone else. But I, wa- I, wanna, I wanna end here on this idea. I don't know if you re- read the latest uh, Arthur Hayes. Somehow I missed this. He came out with this great piece called Annihilation. Oh, Everyone should I gotta read look. it. I, got, I, uh, no, I haven't seen it. It's a long read, but it's, it's well worth it. And you know, he's kind of talking about how this geopolitical situation translates into crypto. And I would love to get your viewpoint on this because I think what's happened recently is that you've got this institutional ownership of Bitcoin. The, the institutions kind of think of Bitcoin as like, just the farthest thing out on the risk curve, right? There's, you know, bonds, there's high yield bonds, there's stocks, there's risky tech stocks, and then there's boom, crypto all the way out on the risk. And uh, whether or not that's true, I don't believe that's true, but I, but that's how the market is, the sees it and is pricing it right mm-hmm. now. So in this, in this environment that we're, we're, maybe we're moving into inflation, maybe we're moving to deflation. You don't believe that, you know, the, the Fed can hike rates. I, I, I don't know, but h- how do you see all of these what, what mm-hmm. do you see happening with crypto now? What's your framework for crypto? I, I, for look, the next I, I, couple it's, years? It's, it's, believe it or not, it's back to my socks. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> it's back to my socks. It's the whales. Mm-hmm. And you're like, Mark, what the hell are you talking about? Okay, here, here's the thing. So you got Peter Schiff out there saying, ah, oh, see, I told you gold is a store of value and Bitcoin's not because, you know, Bitcoin's down and inflation's spiking and gold is up. Okay, <laughs> gold is up this much. Uh, actually not up that much over the last couple of years. Um, but it, it's done its job, right? It's, it's kind of broken out of that, you know, being tamped down by JP Morgan and, and manipulation. Uh, and, and I like gold, right? I, I think gold is a good store of value. It's physical. Yeah. Uh, I think Bitcoin is better version of gold, right? It's digital gold. And everybody says, oh, but, you know, and, and so he's trying to claim victory that it's, 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 a, it's a risk asset because it's risk off. Okay, remember, it's not the asset. The asset is done its job. Bitcoin Mm -hmm. is materially higher over the last two years, materially, because we devalued the currency. So it has, see, Bitcoin didn't get better in the last two years, Mm. right? Bitcoin didn't get better. One Bitcoin equals one Bitcoin. What got worse was the dollar. The dollar got worse. So Bitcoin in U.S. dollars, BTC USD, went up. Look at Bitcoin prices in Venezuela. They don't ever go down. Look at Bitcoin prices in Argentina. They don't ever go down. Look at Bitcoin prices in, in Turkish lira. They don't ever go down. Look at Bitcoin prices in rubles. Set new all-time highs. So as currencies devalue, something that has a store of value, which Bitcoin is, are going to go up. But here's the problem. If... If the average holder, right? So you got all these whales, you know, these big old sacks, they're not going to sell. They're hodlers. I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm not going to sell. Okay, fine. So that means on the margin, who there's our, there's our show on the margin. Uh, you have a bunch of individuals 
setting the daily price, well, here's the problem. Those individuals, so many of them, bought on leverage, some big leverage. And we've talked about this. In a deleveraging, you don't get to sell what you want to sell. You sell what you have to sell. And so that puts short-term pressure on the price of these highly liquid, over-leveraged assets. And so, so long as we allow people to speculate in Bitcoin and other digital assets at 20 times, 50 times, 100 times leverage, you're going to see this type of short-term dislocation from from the normal uh, workings. And so the fact is the Fed hasn't been increasing the balance sheet. They've been increasing the balance sheet, but they haven't been giving away free money recently. So it's not surprising to me that the tailwind that was pushing prices up really high from 2020 to 2021 dissipated. Now, I believe that's coming back, right? Not only is the Fed not going to raise rates, we will be handing out money by the end of this year. Mm. We will be doing more QE, more stimulus checks. Right before the election, we will be handing people money to buy their vote. Mark my words. All right. And Bitcoin will be going up. You know what? Honestly, I have no idea. You might be right. I got to digest that. I Because I, I, I do worry a lot about inflation. I see it in my own life. And um, I don't know. It kind of seems like, again, rocking a hard place. No, but it's, it's, it's what, what you're seeing, what I'm seeing, right? and what you're talking about is rent. Right? I had a friend said his rent just went up 28%. My daughter has a, has a place here that she's renting because she's trying to find a house to buy, but she can't buy a house in Chapel Hill because literally before the house goes on the market, there are 28 you know, bids and it sells at you know, 50% over the, the asking price. And my son-in-law, God love him, a good value guy like me, he's like, I won't do that. I'm like, okay, good. Sorry. Don't, don't do that. Um, and, you know, their landlord just said, hey, I'm, I'm going to raise your rent like 20%. So uh, why? Well, because I can. And that's, that's where we are. But that, I will argue, this is me, that's not inflation. Mm. That's currency devaluation. And there is a difference. And now, it is a little bit inflation in that in Chapel Hill, the supply and demand problem is bad. Yeah. Right? There just aren't it enough is houses too. for all the people coming in. Apple's bringing 4,000 jobs to the area. Mm-hmm. hate Apple for many reasons, but that's another one. You know, they're, they're messing with my, my daughter. A pretty jobs. uninspiring reveal this week. I don't know if you've tuned into that show, but... Uh... Yeah, they're, like oh. they're, they're, they're yearly, you know, here are all of our new products. Oh, I mean, come on. Where's, bad. look, you, like, you can't see it. This would never happen if Steve Jobs was in charge. You can't have it. So when I put my phone down, I, I break the glass around yeah. my camera. That is insane. Yeah. How is, where's the innovation? Where's the, come on, guys. And anyway, I think people forget about Apple as the same net income last year as 2015 and sells it 25 times. But it's more, mm-hmm. but it's more, it's their mix has shifted. I, the, oh no, it's, yeah. it's because they, they financially engineered the earnings per share growth by buying back shares. Yeah. So the earnings per share growth is growing 20%, even though their earnings, their total net income didn't grow. Yeah. But a topic for another day. Yeah. So I, I think that we're in a really tough place in that uh, 
there are pockets of absolute decimation and hollowing out, right? Uh, I heard this, this called the donut theory. If you look at, at real estate, if inside the donut, right, the center of cities, San Francisco, LA, New York, prices are collapsing. Um, but if you look outside, prices are skyrocketing because people want to move out because work from anywhere. Um, and certain places like where I live in North Carolina or in Florida, massive in-migration and, and that's putting pressure on price because we just don't have enough, enough housing stock. But ultimately, I believe, as long as uh, there isn't another bout of free money, which I actually think is coming, but in absence of that, those pressures will abate and this, this Russia-Ukraine thing will dissipate. I, I don't believe it's World War III. I don't believe it's it's Russia taking over Ukraine. I, I you know, they don't want NATO missiles in their backyard. Um, right. right. That's actually kind of fair. Mm-hmm. That's kind of fair. You're supposed to have neutral buffers. Don't don't join NATO now. Zelensky's backing off. Maybe I don't need NATO. Okay, fine, whatever. Um, so I, I do think that will dissipate. I think oil prices will start to come down. When oil prices start to come down. And then you have the reverse pressure on inflation will get, I think, to a level that is palatable mm. to people. We're still going to have food problems, food, food price problems because of supply chain. Supply chain, and, and again, this is top for another day. Maybe we should do a whole show on this. Mm. I still think this is all part of the plan. Mm. China. China is playing a different game. And guess what? Visa, Mastercard, canceling Russia. What does China say? Bring it. We love you. You can use our network, which is now bigger than we Visa are. and Mastercard. Oh, those oil prices went down ninety percent. Those those oil and 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 Shell and those are going to abandon their assets. Ah, we will take them. Mm-hmm. So China is building an axis. Some would say the axis of evil. I would just say an axis of allies. And we're going to fracture the world in two. We're going to have the you know, US-led coalition, and we're going to have the China-led coalition. We're going to have two internets, which is sucky, because one is better than two. We're going to have two 5G systems. We're going to have two trading s- systems. That is not good. That is anti-comparative advantage. It's bad for costs. It's bad for geopolitics. It's bad for just state of mind. You know, peaceful state of mind. Yeah. But it's, look, America has been in charge for about 80 years. Mm-hmm. And we like it. But all empires end. Mm-hmm. Every single one in the history of mankind. Yeah. And this one is under pressure right now. And we have crappy leadership, like really crappy leadership. And that exacerbates the problem. And people don't like when I say this, but China has way better leadership. Oh, you're crazy. He's a a despot. Mm. Study. Study the man. Study the system. Study their plan. Study their 30-year plan. All right. It's interesting. Um, we're, we're getting into some interesting stuff here, but unfortunately, that's yeah, all the time I know. we have. I know. That's all go. the time we have for this week. But uh, Mark, go. as always, a blast. Sinister Saturday. I will see you same time next week, my friend. Yeah.